Well, good. Over the last several days, we've been focusing on the cultivation first of loving kindness and then of compassion. As I mentioned each, uh, earlier, each of these, the loving kindness and compassion, can be understood as derivative of a more fundamental, perhaps the most fundamental, impulse or stirring within the human spirit, and that is, I think, is really for all, all sentient beings, and that is this impulse of caring. So we've kind of split it apart uh, into these two aspects. With the more positive valence, may this happen, may something positive happen with loving kindness, and the more negative valence, may we be free of something for compassion. What I'd like to do for this afternoon session would be to put these two halves together, and now we go, we go for really the classic practice of Donglen, which unifies these two practices. And this can be done with or without conjunction of the breath. So when you're first kind of getting the hang of or becoming familiar with the Donglen practice, you probably want, will not want to conjoin it with the breath, at least not every single out-breath, every single in-breath, shifting, shifting gears, so to speak, probably be a little bit too busy, right? What you, what you can do is, as you're starting off with every out-breath, or let's say with every in-breath, First in, just with every in-breath, imagine drawing in the suffering, arousing the compassion, and just focusing on the in-breath, the in-breath, the in-breath, and then turn around and focus on the out-breath, the out-breath, out-breath. That will make it not too rushed. You won't feel that you're always shifting gears, right? When you get more accustomed to the practice, more familiar, then I think you'll probably find no problem at all in actually doing the full cycle of the, the tong and the len, the sending and the receiving, with each cycle of the breath. What I thought might be a way to enrich this practice or bring a little bit more, how do you say, yeah, just richness to it, texture, would be to recall these four modes of enlightened activity that I mentioned this morning and then earlier on in this retreat. Just re and it's worth m remembering them. It's pacifying, color white. It's easy to, to re relate them with the color coding. It's easy to remember. White and then enriching, both with tangible as, as well as intangible goods, gold, and then power or force, not injurious, but nevertheless, some might, and that's related to the color red, and then finally, ferocity, wrathfulness, and perhaps even violence, and the color coded there is dark blue. And so as you're, and what I'm, I'm speaking a little bit now, maybe for another three or four minutes, and then when we go to the practice, very few words, because I'd really like to kind of just let you go. Um, but as you're letting your attention row where you will, to individuals, to regions of the globe, to communities, and so forth, then <clears throat> as you're thinking, or uh, uh, yeah, as, you, uh, as it comes to mind, what do these sentient beings, let's say human beings, what are they really looking for? What do they need? Let's imagine that it's an impoverished area. Then as you're breathing out this loving kindness, you may imagine the light that you're bringing, breathing out. And you may do this with a full visualization, or if you're not so good at visualization, no big deal. Just breathe out. But if you're doing it with the visualization, you can imagine that the light that you're breathing out from your heart is actually taking on the form of what is really needed. I just took a glance at the third chapter of Shantideva's A Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life, and it's very explicit there. May I become the medicine for those who are needed of medical care. May I become the food for those who are hungry. May I become the companion for those who are lonely. So to turn this into Donglan practice is very sweet. So you just imagine whatever is needed, that the light being sent out, the energy being sent out, so to speak, then takes on the form of whatever is needed. And then likewise, as you're drawing in, drawing in the darkness, 
You can imagine that the darkness, whatever it is, whether it's, whether it's anger, whether it's physical pain, whatever it may be, conflict, warfare, and so forth, kind of dissolving away into dark, into a kind of a darkness like a dark cloud, and drawing that in, siphoning that in to this orb of light at your heart and letting it vanish there. So what I'm getting at here is as your attention roves, kind of let it off the leash, not just to wander, but to be not too structured, not too rigid, then your attention may go to areas where what is really needed is this white light of just soothing, of calming, of peace, of serenity. So maybe that's just what the doctor ordered. In other cases, as you attend, maybe it's enrichment. People are impoverished, or there's ignorant, or you know, there's no schooling, no education, and so forth. And then you imagine the light taking on the form of teachers and schools and so forth, this golden light taking on that. Other times, people may simply need protection. Protection. So the red light goes out and just gives them this you know, protection. And likewise, on occasion, sometimes ferocity. That'll probably be, let that be the minority. Um, but in each case, just you may fill this out for the loving-kindness aspect and the compassion aspect in each of these four modes and imagine what is coming out taking on the form of what is needed and whatever needs to dis disappear to be for which, from which there needs to be freedom. Imagine that turning into the darkness, dissolving into the light, and then leaving without trace. So, that's that. Okay? So an enriched version, enriched version of Donglen, I will launch us, but most of the time we'll be meditating in silence. So please find a comfortable position. Let's begin this session like all others by very conscientiously settling the body, the speech together with the respiration and the mind in their natural state, finding that balance between deep relaxation and the clarity of vigilance.
And then as you draw on the more luminous and dynamic aspects or potentials of consciousness, let your attention rove. It may alight on someone who is close to you, a friend, a colleague, a loved one. It may be a single individual, maybe a family. those suffering from physical distress or mental, or perhaps struggling with the environment, the economy, and so on. Wherever your attention alights, attend closely, recalling for the moment what we attend to is reality. to the best of your ability, entering into, empathetically sharing the hopes and fears, the plight of others, and then returning to your own vantage point. And as you would yearn for your own happiness and for your own freedom from suffering, arouse a similar aspiration with each out-breath, sending out the light of loving-kindness, with each in-breath, drawing in and dissolving the darkness of suffering and its causes in a spirit of compassion. And let's continue practicing now in silence.
before we bring this session to a close, since we are guests in this kingdom of Thailand, I'd like to draw your awareness to a very troubled spot. It's about one square mile in Bangkok. Clearly the unrest spreads far beyond that, but this is the nucleus of it, where there are roughly about 5,000 people who are the red shirts advocating a swift election, the dismissal of the parliament, and they want this now. There are elements within this group that seem quite violent, others not so much, or perhaps not at all. They simply want to see democratic elections taking place very soon. So one can see this is not an issue of black and white. The yellow shirts, those supporting the current government, want to wait until the due time comes for election. But there is suffering here. There is bloodshed, a mounting tension, a lot of fear. A lot of fear that this will spread. And insofar as violence continues, we know this will leave scars, festering wounds that will be of no benefit to this country. So direct your loving kindness and your compassion, if you will, to this very troubled spot, right in the center of Bangkok, that peace may be restored. And whatever conflicts there are, that they may be resolved peacefully and with wisdom and not just with force and violence. For just a little while, expand the scope, the space of your awareness in all directions. With each in-breath arousing yearning, may we all be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. With each out-breath arousing the yearning, may we each find genuine happiness and cultivate the causes of such well-being.
release all appearances and for a moment rest in the simplicity of your own awareness. Let's bring the session to a close. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> a few questions here, very diverse. <clears throat> so here's first a very practical question for me, Enrique, and I think it's relevant to many, if not all of you here. The question is this, is it fine to extend the length of a session if we feel it is going well and we don't want to break the flow? Or is it better to extend sessions gradually and uniformly? Uh, I've been skipping sometimes the break between two back-to-back -back sessions. Is this detrimental in the long run? <clears throat> so a number of you have asked me this question uh, in private, and what we're looking for here is a middle way, and that is... So, and, and overall, I would say, here's the strategy to find the middle way. Identify the two extremes, and what's left over is the middle way. So the extremes would be, first of all, flat-out rigidity. I will sit for 24 minutes. I will sit for 30 minutes. And even if the time is dragging by and I wish it would end, I will still just grit my teeth <clears throat> and show true grit. And I will meditate for 30 minutes, even if I really don't want to. Uh, so there's one extreme. That one's just beating your head, head against a wall. And the other one is, I'm going to just meditate as long as it feels good. But if it doesn't feel good, then I'm just going to stop and take a walk or maybe look for ice cream. <laughs> or anything else that will get my mind off. And so clearly, so those are the two extremes. And then we come into the center. So is it detrimental if, if you're doing back-to-back -back sessions and your body feels just fine? There's no stress, no, no tension, no pain. And if you're really in a flow, is it detrimental not to take that break, but just flow right into the second session? I don't see why. No, it would be fine. If, and likewise, let alone back-to-back -back sessions, if a practice is just going really well, and you still have that freshness, a full engagement, the full interest uh, in, in the practice, you're right there, right on the mark, um, sh do you need to stop it? No, why not continue for a while? Okay? So, you know, there's no strict rule there. This will not be detrimental to the practice. Um, do recall the, the, the words from Geshe Ngaun Taige. I think you do remember them. Uh, and that is, don't make a habit of extending the sessions until you're just tired, until you're just out of gas. You know, you just don't want to meditate, meditate anymore because that will set up a habit of ending on empty and then you'll probably, you're going to lose your enthusiasm for coming back. Whereas if you, so as a general rule of thumb, and I think you know what I'm going to say right now, um, bring the session to an end when you still have the feeling, I could, I could certainly meditate a bit longer, but this is good. And again, the, the metaphor I like is um, dropping in as simply as, as a, uh, how do you say, a friendly visit to the home of a good friend of yours. 
and you, you come in, you knock on the door, and you see that your friend is very happy to see you, and you spend some time together, and, you know, maybe an hour, two, three hours, and then you're kind of looking at your watch and said, and you might feel, well, I would still enjoy staying a bit longer, but maybe if I stay much longer, I'll be overstaying my welcome. Maybe this person has other things to do. Um, maybe, be maybe better go now, while it's still really nice, you know? And it's kind of that mood, okay? Good. So a very practical question. And then another very practical one from Kathleen. Well, it's, um, no, it's practical. It's, it's, it's just different. We have three very different types of questions, which makes it interesting. <clears throat> the question is from the, our time assistant, the lady with the tea. Uh, my question is about time, a big philosophical, co philosophical, cosmological, and scientific subject, but here related specifically to consciousness. So this, I'm not going to go into a big philosophical exposition of the nature of time. We'll try to keep this closely related to our actual practice. And what C Kathleen comments here is, I find the deeper I go toward the substrate, I think we all now know what that means, uh, the session flies by. Time simply seems to pass easily, quickly. Whereas those sessions which mu with much discursiveness, a lot of conceptual thoughts, obsessive compulsive flow of thoughts, uh, those tend to drag on and on. At what point does a linear sense of time fade out? When does that happen? Does it happen when the sense is shut down, only when you achieve shamatha, or when you realize rikpa? So, happily, this is a gradient. This is not something we have to wait and wait for. When, when, when is it going to happen? And again, just to focus on the specific question, at what point does the linear sense of time fade out? Well, I think you've already had some experience of that. And so, in a way, you could answer, to some extent, you could answer your own question. Uh, you've not suggested that you have... Um, that your senses have shut down. You didn't mention that, or that you'd achieve shamatha. If you do, I'd really like to have your seat right here. Uh, so we can co-teach, uh, or that any did not indicate that you'd realized rikpa, but you were, and a number of other people here, um, long before having achieved shamatha, just on occasion will enter into kind of this quality of flow where there's a deep stillness, it is relaxed, it's not tight or strained, very little chit-chat or discursiveness, and time just slips by. And if it's a timer, say, oh, already? Like that. And so clearly this is already, this is already occurring here without any so-called high attainment. Uh, I think there's a very strong correlation here as follows. And that is our, and I'm speaking now not of time in the physicist sense of the term. So now we have space-time, we have warping of space-time. I read an article just recently by Stephen Hawking and he was talking about the possibility of time travel. Um, that's time that's out there, that's the physicist mode of time. But what we're speaking about here is experiential time, the first-person experience of time, and these two are not the same. They're not the same. They're related, but not identical. Any more than light waves are the same as the, the qualia of seeing bright light, okay? They're related, but they're not the same thing. So focusing just on the experience, and I think that's where I would like to stay. Uh, in my experience, the sense of passage of time is, in a way, it's marked. It's marked by discursive thought. And so the chit-chat, we do have, when there's stuff going on, let, let, let's, let's do slip over here, and that is time, just generally speaking, we say a passage of time, we mark because of something that's occurred during that period of time. We see the, the second hand go around, we say, oh, okay, that's one minute. But it was up chick, 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 60 times, and then, okay, there were a lot of little markers there, and then one, one minute passed. And so this is generally, 
You know, whether it's an atomic clock, whether it's the, the, the sun going around the earth, as it seems to do anyway, um, it's because of, of, t of change, perceived change, that we have an experience of the passage of time. Well, when there's a lot of chit-chat, chit-chat about this and then that, and then this emotion, and then that emotion, and this memory, and that fantasy, well, all of those, with a lot of stuff happening, we're going to have a very clear sense of time because there's so much stuff happening. And time, the experience of time is something that we do designate conceptually. The very notion of one hour is a conceptual designation, right? One year and so forth and so on. Seasons. We carve out, we superimpose the cookie cutter of our mind and say, okay, this is spring. It starts now and it ends here. Right? So we superimpose that on the utterly smooth transition of the seasons and we find periods of time. Well, overall, when this conceptual mind, especially the obsessive and compulsive flow of thought, when that subsides, then there's less happening, subjectively. There's just less happening, especially if you're going into something like awareness of awareness. But even the rhythmic flow of in-out breath, if you're not counting them, then one breath can be pretty much like another, and if you're not remembering the past breaths, not remembering how many have gone by, even attending to something that is repetitive, rhythmic change can also take on a very timeless quality, let alone awareness of awareness, right? Likewise with settling the mind in its natural state, as you have just few, a dissipation of this stuff, the cascading waterfall of thoughts arising, the, pass this, the experience of the passage of time will get softer and softer, and time will fly by. So overall, the markers of time are superimposed by conceptual designation. I said it wouldn't go cosmic, but some, I, I, and I'm going to just turn back and say, yes, I am. <laughs> just because I found it so fascinating. And this is mainstream science. It's been written about very eloquently by the physicist Paul Davies, who's a very distinguished uh, theoretical physicist. I think it, uh, I know he's at a university in Arizona. I think it's, I'm not sure, it's in northern Arizona. I don't quite remember the name. Uh, but he's written about it, and he draws on such people as, as John Wheeler and, and Stephen Hawking and others. Uh, but it's this whole co uh, quantum cosmological view of reality where you take the principles of quantum mechanics and assume that the whole universe is a quantum system. What is so fascinating here, this is, this is a tangent, but I think maybe it's worth a couple of minutes, and that is... According to John Wheeler, and Paul Davies writes about this very eloquently, um, without, their, without introducing an observer participant into the natural world, if you just, if you, and what they're doing is they're taking the Schrodinger wave equation, which is your, your, your standard equation in quantum mechanics, and applying this to the universe as a whole. Okay, this was done about, gosh, what was it, maybe 20, 25 years ago by John Wheeler and a colleague of his. Um, but then, they, then, you have a quantum, then you have the mathematics of the universe as a quantum system. If you look at it purely objectively, something slips out. Something isn't there. And it's time. And so the, 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 how it's phrased is the, the problem of frozen time. That without the observer participant, without somebody making a measurement, then there is no time, there is no change, and the universe does not evolve. There is no change at all. So there's no change, there's no time, the problem of frozen time. And according to John Wheeler, what is needed here is you need to introduce into the natural world an observer participant, and from my reading of his writings here, what that observer participant does, and I hope this is not too much of an oversimplification, 
the observer participant conceptually imputes now. A relative now, not a primordial now, as in Rikpa, pristine awareness, which is the now beyond the three times. No, now within the three times. There needs to be a conceptual designator, an observer participant, who designates now, and that now that you have now, then with relative to now you have the future, and relative now you have the past, and now you can have change. Right? But without that frozen time. I thought that was quite interesting and very resonant with, with Buddhism. Because in Buddhism also, time is not absolute. Time exists only relative to conceptual designation. Right? So, that was just an aside to physics. So we come back to experience. So you've already had the taste of a relatively timeless, timeless phases where time just flies by. You didn't notice the passing of time. And you had exactly pinpointed the reason for it. The discursive mind was quiet, so you didn't have all those markers, those reminders to yourself how much time has passed. Well, let's, let's fast forward this and let's imagine that you get up to about stage seven or eight. It's at that point, and I don't know if this is true for everyone, but I think this is a fairly strong, a fairly good generalization. Stage seven, stage eight, certainly by stage nine, this is when the senses, the physical senses, are really imploding or withdrawing into purely mental awareness. Your eyes can be open, your ears are unplugged, your body has no an anesthesia, and the sense of him being incorporated will fade in and fade out. And you'll have, pass it, you'll have phases when you just don't feel embodied. Your ears are open, but you just have no sense of there being any sound. Your eyes may be softly open, but you're not getting any information, right? And so the awareness, which is like as, as if a, quinite, a, a finite quantity has simply been withdrawn from the tactile, the auditory, and the visual, it's being drawn into, almost like channeling river into a canal, so it doesn't just go diffuse out over a river, river delta. It goes into a very narrow channel, and that channel is mental, so all of it's going there. But as you're in these in more advanced stages of shamatha practice, stages seven, eight, nine, then of course there's also very little discursiveness. So when you're slipping into that state, then two hours, three hours can easily slip by, and very pleasantly. Okay? Just slip by. And you take a little break and another two or three hour session. Uh, in the one year retreat back in 1988, we had one person who, um, towards the end of the one year, was meditating. I think you probably heard this before, and only two, only two sessions a day. Genlan Merba started everyone out with 18 sessions a day of 15 minutes to only four and a half hours. About a lot of sessions. And as the year went by, then one person in this retreat, at the end, towards the end, the last month or two of the retreat, was doing, doing only two sessions. The first one was 11 hours, and the second one was four. And this person needed to take a break after 11 hours because needed to take a bathroom break, and then take something to eat, and then back into another four hours. Continued in the practice, that was at stage six. Stage six, 11-hour sessions. Now, that doesn't mean that if you've achieved stage six, you'll necessarily have 11-hour sessions. But she was in bliss the whole time, and she just didn't want a break. You know? She went on, and from what I heard from a good source, because uh, that was during the one year, she continued in practice, I heard that later she went on and achieved stage seven and was doing 14 hours at a stretch. So, not true for everybody. Uh, overall, you might just decide, oh, I would, I'd rather have shorter sessions, two, three, four-hour sessions. Uh, by the time you achieve shamatha, definitely four-hour sessions will be just a piece of cake. But now, so that's there. So you can imagine for this person while, while sp spending a blissful 11 hours, 
the passage of time is just going to be very, very, uh, I think you know the word, just not, not very present. Achieve shamatha, and this whole pro- process now comes to, you know, come to its, its relative end. You've slipped into the substrate consciousness, it's non-conceptual, and so there really you feel that you could remain, you feel you could remain indefinitely. You can't because your body will need some sustenance. Um, although there is such a thing as f- the food of samadhi, dingenzingize. And that is a way actually, that's a higher stage, but it is possible to live actually on the food of samadhi and not need course, uh, nour- uh, nourishment. Danielle and then someone else also uh, alerted me to some Hindu yogi that was just studied by 30 physicians. And they had him, for, it was a fortnight, wasn't it? Two weeks, I think. And they gave him no food. He said that for decades, he was an old man, that was my impression. He said for decades he had been just living, on, just living with no food. And they said, oh yeah, show us. So they, they sat him down and for two weeks, they wouldn't even let him swallow water. They just let him rinse his mouth and then spit. And then they would check by the milliliter whether he spit it all back or not, right? And no food. And they say he lost a tiny bit of weight. Tiny bit of weight. But little, really tiny. And then they released him. So that's what the Buddhists would call the food of samadhi. Uh, in any case, coming back to the shamatha, well, here we have at a relative level, mitopa, uh, mitopa, non-conceptual. Of course, the sense of passage of time is going to be very, very, very slight. Uh, but this doesn't mean that if you go into shamatha that you, you might just, you know, forget that you went into shamatha and then just die of starvation. You know, just... You know, timber! <laughs> Whoops, <laughs> you know, <laughs> never heard of that happening. Uh, something will arouse you, and here's one of the interesting points, and again, it resonates with our ordinary experience. Many people have the experience of being able to, uh, before falling asleep, to set an internal timer. If they know they need to catch an airplane, or they need to leave for work early the next day, or whatever, I, will, I must wake up at 4 o'clock, must wake up at 4 o'clock. Some people, some people will wake up having set their mental alarm at 4 o'clock, and they go to bed at 10, they'll wake up at 10.30 and 11, and 11.30 and 12, you know, they're going to really cover it, you know. Uh, but others, a little bit more pinpoint like that, like a smart bomb, and they just bomb 4, 4 p.m., and they sleep right to, and then, bing, it goes off. And so that is not a, a terribly occult or esoteric experience. Many people have had that. And that's exactly what is the case in shamatha. No surprise, you're going into the substrate in deep sleep, and you're going into the substrate in shamatha. And so if you, if you look at your clock, let's imagine you have achieved shamatha, and you say, okay, it's uh, 5.30, uh, I don't have anything I need to do until 9, so that's going to be a three and a half hour session. Okay, three and a half hours, here we go. And then three and a half hour, bing, and you can come right out. So that's, that's one way of taking care of that. So this is all within the relative plane. Uh, when you come to rikpa, if you are, how do you say, if you have gained a non-conceptual, unmediated realization of rikpa, then such a person is called a vidyadhara. Vidya is a Sanskrit word for rikpa, and dhara means a holder of, one who is fully realized. And so you are a vidyadhara. If you have that non-conceptual, unmediated identification of rikpa, um, then you... It's a bit complex because there are multiple ways, multiple ways this can manifest. Um, when your mind is completely absorbed in rikpa, in its primordial stillness, I think I've chosen my words, in its primordial stillness, it's called jadelwa, jadelwa or jamet, 
utterly divorced of activity, utterly primordially still, still beyond time, in the fourth time. In that, then your attention is withdrawn, not into the substrate, into nirvana, right? into nirvana and into this, into this non-manifest of awareness, not only into nirvana, but into non-manifest of awareness, which is the innate mind of clear light. And so that is utterly timeless. That's not relatively timeless, that is utterly timeless, right? Um, but it's an interesting point here. And that is, if one gains access to that dimension of awareness, and I'm going to shift over to, to the terminology of innate mind of clear light, which is the terminology used in the new translation schools, commonly, the, the Kagyu, the Sakya, the, the Gelupa, and my, my training is primarily in Gelupa in this regard, is a point I mentioned earlier, and so I'll just remind you today, that when you're gaining access to that dimension of awareness, the innate mind of clear light, by way of classic Vajrayana practice, stage of, stage of generation, and complete it. Finish it. Do it. Don't just practice it. Just like you don't just practice shamatha, finish it. And likewise, practice stage of generation and complete it. And then move into, if you're really going to do this robustly, then move into stage of completion. And as you're moving through the stages of, stages of realization of, it's called the stage of completion, Zokrim, uh, then what is happening there is not only, the not only is the coarse mind dissolved into the subtle mind, but the subtle mind is dissolving into the very subtle mind, which is synonymous with the innate mind of clear light. And the idea here is as long as the coarser manifestations, I'm using my arms like a seesaw here, as long as the coarser manifestations of consciousness, and that is to say anything other than the innate mind of clear light, as long as that is still active, the innate, the innate mind of clear light will be shrouded, invisible, inaccessible. You have to get all of those to shut down, and in terms of the subtle physiology, all of the prana, not only the coarse but the subtle prana, these need to dissolve into the heart chakra, which corresponds to achieving shamatha and settling in a substrate. But then from there, the pranas then dissolve into what is called the indestructible bindu, mishukitikle. And at that point, all that remains of those energies is the very subtle energy. All that remains of the mind is the very subtle mind, which is the innate mind of clear light. And you have disengaged, disengaged from all coarse manifestations of awareness, which means you are gone. You have gone completely transcendent. You're like an arhat who's died. I mean, that transcendent, okay? And so that is utterly timeless. Utterly timeless. From your perspective. Now, a person looking outside will see, there's your body, you know, blood flowing and so forth. So, but in the Dzogchen tradition, they acknowledge that, that, that there is this unmediated realization of Rikpa in which, in its primordial stillness, but there's another facet of this that is more characteristic of the Dzogchen I think you don't find it so much in the classic presentations of stage of generation and completion. And that is the assertion that you may realize Rikpa by way of realizing, it's, it's called Rikpetzel. Rikpetzel, and these are the effulgences, the creative displays of Rikpa. In other words, the, your thoughts and sensory imagery does not necessarily obscure the nature of Rikpa. You may actually ascertain it as being pure expressions of Rikpa. In which case, seeing that which Seeing something that is a pure expression of something is not to obscure the something of which that is a pure expression. When that takes place, your mind is not withdrawn, even from thought, let alone from your senses. And so you are, in a way, you're tapping into two worlds simultaneously. Because you are realizing Rikpa, but your awareness is also open to 
the senses, and even thoughts arising. Because you're seeing every thought that arises is nothing other than a, a pure display of rikpa. And then you see from the inside out, not having to imagine or visualize, you see from the inside out that should a little spurt of irritation arise, mirror-like wisdom is manifested. Some attachment arises. Discerning primordial wisdom has arisen, and so forth. Because you're seeing it without the veils of grasping. Okay? So something like that. I wonder if asked what the great yogis would say about the passage of time. Well, I hope I've relayed it without distortion, with no claims that I'm a great yogi, but I have been with some great yogis, and so that's my best answer. Okay? Very interesting question. And we have another one, this one from Martin. And here the question is this, I've heard, I've heard it said that the next incarnation of the Dalai Lama will choose not to be born in Tibet, primarily to avoid Chinese capture. How does he, she, that's an interesting point, he, she, because there's no absolute guarantee the next Dalai Lama will be a, a man, choose where to be born. And so we'll start there, and then there's a second part here, but we'll start at the lofty heights um, of a Dalai Lama. And of course, I know nothing whatsoever, so my first thing is, why are you asking me? <laughs> but of course, I've read what he say, states, and it, what he states is very clear. And that is, as long as, should he pass away before self-determination, human rights, um, those are really basically it, the preservation of the culture, the, the, just that, the basic human rights and the self-preservation of their culture, if, if his homeland should pass away before that happens, in other words, just status quo, the Tibet's just part of China, they, they really don't have human rights, they can be taken away just with a stroke of a pen, uh, and they have been repeatedly, even recently, um, should that take place, then, the, then his homeland has made it very clear, emphatically and on multiple occasions, resoundingly, over the press, internationally, I will, if, I, if I pass away as things are now, I will absolutely not take rebirth in Tibet, count on it. I will take, I will take birth, but not in Tibet. And so most likely in a place one would imagine, I would speculate, probably in a Tibetan community, in India, Nepal, Bhutan, Ladakh, something like that. Now, all of this is really quite transparent, the reason for it. And that is, let alone capture, well, he, if he should leave this open and say, well, maybe I'll take birth in Tibet after all, I miss Tibet, you know? And should he take birth as there, and then he's identified, because of course that will certainly happen. You know, give, give him a two or three years after his, pa his passing. You can imagine this is going to be the top priority of the Tibetan people as a whole. Where is the Dalai Lama? So they will send out their finest lamas. They'll do divinations, they'll do whatever measures they can to try to find where has he be re been reborn. Well, if this should happen in Tibet, obviously this will become public very soon. And obviously the Chinese government, the Chinese communist government, will take a tremendously keen interest in that. And they will immediately appropriate that child. As they did with the young Karmapa, as they did with the pensioner Boche, they will take over absolutely. And I saw this when I visited Subogomba back in 1992. When Kamapa was still there, he was about an eight-year-old boy, give or take, but pretty close to about eight years old. I visited him there. I had a brief darshan with him. And it was like a military enclave. I mean, it, it wasn't armed guards everywhere, but boy, there was no question about who was in charge. Um, this, this boy was under tight wraps. And amazingly, despite the security, because the, the last thing the Chinese communist government wanted to do was to lose this extraordinary lama with enormous uh, political 
you know, the, the Kamapa is not only a Lama, he also, in multiple incarnations, has been a very major political leader in Tibet. And he also um, arouses tremendous veneration, devotion by, well, millions of Tibetans. And so losing him was um, not what the Chinese government wanted. He managed to slip away. I've met him on a number of occasions at my Inner Life conference. I sat right next to him. And he is an, I know there are two. I'm not going to go into the complexities of that. But the one I've met is the one that is very much, uh, how do we say, very close to the Dalai Lama, living quite nearby, receiving a superb education, and he's an utterly remarkable young man. So, Kamapa. So, but what happened to the Kamapa before he was able to escape from Tibet and then get a full education, have total freedom, travel the world, um, is absolutely under wraps. Well, if the Dalai Lama should take rebirth in Tibet, then, like with the Pension Lama, he'll be just immediately in, in the tight grip of the Chinese Communist government, and they will do everything. I mean, they're so predictable. It's just utterly predictable. They will do everything that, within their power, which will be enormous, to make him a puppet, to make sure that he's indoctrinated, that he's going to be a staunch supporter of the motherland, and that means of the Chinese Communist government in Beijing. And so they will, and if he, and if he revolts, then you'll suddenly find that he disappeared, like the Pension Lama has disappeared. Uh, without a trace. Nobody knows, I mean, none of us knows where he's gone. So for very obvious reasons, this is what His Holiness has chosen. And so it, basically he's taking a card out of the deck of the Chinese Communist government that should he pass away before there's a peaceful and happy resolution and happy for the Chinese people and happy for the Tibetan people. Because it does not. I just wish I could... I wish I could just go sit down with these people <laughs> as if I matter at all. But I wish they could just see the, the light of day, that this would be good for everyone. It would be such a burden off the Chinese government not to have this thorn in their side and villainizing a man who's one of the most beloved men on the whole world. Uh, it's just such a bad deal they've gotten themselves into. But should he pass away before then, he'll be, he's taken this card out of their deck. And what they will do anyway it's almost certain that they are getting, getting so predictable. They'll find some little Tibetan kid, and they will, and they'll do some kind of. A <laughs> it, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's childish. It's really hilarious. They'll probably do some golden urn kind of ritual, and put a bunch of names in there and pick one out. The Chinese communists who don't believe in reincarnation at all. They're going to find the true incarnation. That's what they'll tell you, as they did with the Pension Lama. They didn't like the one that Dalai Lama and these other high lamas in Tibet chose. They said, no, that's the wrong one. We, who don't believe in reincarnation at all, we'll do a little gimmick here with a bowl and we'll pull a name out of a hat like a lottery and we'll call this the kid the real Pension Lama. And all you Tibetans, you agree with us, don't you? I mean, it's hysterical. How could anybody believe that when they even they don't believe it? I mean, it's really quite hysterical. Well, they will do the same thing with the Dalai Lama. Even if he's, having said what he said, they can still do it. <laughs> They're totally predictable. And they'll try to foist this on the Tibetan people. We found the real Dalai Lama. You believe us, don't you? We don't believe in reincarnation, but why should that matter? And so, you know, so it's really a charade. It'll be, it'll be one just one farce, as they already have a farce with the Pension Lama. Uh, so that's why he'll not be reborn in. The Tibetans, should this happen, he will be reborn outside, where, who can say? But they will find him and they will raise him um, in the most beneficial way they possibly can. So that's that. Where, how can he choose? Um, let us imagine, let us be a little bit modest here because there's so many different levels of, re of realization. Uh, there's that of a, a bodhisattva who's just set out on the bodhisattva path, has achieved the Mahayana path of accumulation. 
There's Arya Bodhisattvas who have had direct realization of emptiness and extraordinary powers and so forth, and then multiple levels above that, and then there are actual Buddhas who may still manifest, appearing as Bodhisattvas, but internally they're actually Buddhas. And so this is, of course, this is Mahayana speech I'm, I'm giving here, the Mahayana, Mahayana perspective. So there's a wide range and just tremendous range of bodhisattvas. As, and so if we should say, well, let's imagine, let's just imagine the Dalai Lama is a bodhisattva. Let's really stretch the imagination and think, gee, maybe he's a bodhisattva. In which case, with the, the, the power of his realization, the power of his compassion, putting just those two, speaking rather generally, then when he passed through the bardo, he would do so very consciously. He would draw from his compassion to go where he can be of greatest benefit. He would draw from his wisdom to see where that is, what type of family, what, what country, what place, and so forth, and guided by, motivated by his, his compassion, guided by his wisdom, he would simply try to find the place to be of greatest possible benefit. And so it would be really simply a matter of choice. And it would be very similar to navigating through a lucid dream, if you've been in a lucid dream, you know you really can choose where would you like to go now? You're lucid. Well, you simply go where you like to go. And if you're within the lucid dream, you're a very compassionate and wise person, then you would go in a very wise and compassionate direction. And so that's, that, that's how this happens for highly realized beings. Um, when I lived with Genlam Rimba for one year, during this one-year retreat back in 1988, speaking to this yogi who had spent something like, at that point, probably 25 to 30 years in solitude and meditation, I asked him, where, where would you like to direct your consciousness in your next life? And his response was very simple and it was immediate. And he said, he said, simply, wherever I can be of greatest benefit. So it relates back to the point raised earlier. Uh, but those 30 years, he wasn't really doing a whole lot. I mean, he was meditating an awful lot, but he wasn't really out there teaching and establishing monasteries, helping the poor, starting clinics, starting schools, doing some real good in the world. He was just meditating from five o'clock in the morning till one o'clock in the morning. Um, and from a Buddhist perspective, all I would say is more power to you. Thank you. What he did was he spent most of his life just charging his battery up. Really a big, big battery and getting it really, really charged. And then his motivation, and it was so, he could have said anything he wanted to. He would have told me the truth. But he could have said, oh, I want to find the best cave in Tibet or I want to go to a pure land, or I want, to, I want to just focus on this kind of practice. And he didn't. All kinds of things he could have said for himself to deepen his own practice. And all he said was, wherever I can be of greatest benefit, that's where I want to go. So, so for such beings, when there is such depth of insight, and in the case of Gyanlam Rimba, I think I mentioned earlier, when he did pass away, then he spent four and a half days, for, uh, according to a person who was with him, four and a half days in the clear light of death, and so if we take Dujum Lingba's rule of thumb, that if you can remain in the realization of Rikpa for one day, you can stay for one week in the clear light of death, then maybe we can <laughs> draw our inferences about his level of samadhi and a, a level of realization. It's not quite so easy, though. Dujum Lingba said, you may. He didn't say you necessarily will. So it, when there are yogis like Kempa Jigme Pinsol, who is regarded quite widely as one, perhaps the greatest yogi in all of Tibet, passed away several years back. Uh, from what I hear, I didn't hear of any extraordinary signs when he passed away. There may have been some, I just didn't hear of any. Does that mean, oh, it was a charade, you know, he had 10,000 disciples, he fooled them all. Not at all, not at all. Buddha Shakyamuni, did he achieve rainbow body? Did his body shrink down to a little tiny size? Did he remain in the clear light of death for days and days after he stopped breathing? No, 
Does that mean he wasn't a Buddha? No, that's just not what he chose to display. Right? So, if there is no such display, that does not, that's no guarantee the person doesn't have realization. If there is such a display, that's a pretty strong indicator. Right? I mean, you can fool people throughout the course of your life. You can, as, who was it? Abraham Lincoln? You can fool some of the people all of the time and all the people some of the time. It was he, wasn't it? Abraham Lincoln? I think so. No, you don't know? P.C. Barnum? Okay, thank you. Abraham Lincoln, P.C. Barnum. Eh, tomatoes, tomatoes. <laughs> thank you for that. Thank you for that. But it's a pretty good statement. You can fool all the people some of the time and some of the people all of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. Uh, Donna teachers can fool a lot of people a good deal of the time. You know, if you really want to pretend like you have high realization, you're very charismatic, you smile a lot. What's right? I don't know. But it's a good phrase anyway, and it, I think it's true. That's the most important thing. I think it's true. You can fool all of the people some of the time, and so forth. And so, but you may have been, a, 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 you know, tricking people, but I think it would be really hard to trick people after your breath is stopped. <laughs> you know? How do you pull that one off? How do you pretend to be a dwelling in the clear light of death for a week or two after you've died? I, don't, I think that would really have to be very tricky <laughs> to do that. So, but the question does open up. Uh, could, could I t talk more about the stage between death and rebirth on a more general level? So this is from Martin, and happy to do so, since after all, this is not for other people, but this is something we'll be facing ourselves. I'll preface it with this comment, because not necessarily everyone here believes in, in reincarnation or karma. You'll notice that was not one of the questions on the, the questionnaire we had everybody fill out. Are you a, are you, do you follow the party line? Do you believe reincarnation? Literally? Do you believe that, do you believe, do, do, do you believe the bardo is literally 49 days? We didn't ask that question. None of those questions came up. That's your business. And so, just taking a step back to the very, very famous Kalama Sutta, where the Buddha I won't give the whole story, but I give the quintessence of it, which is relevant here. He said, when it comes to determining what to follow, what, what to not follow, I'm, and I'm paraphrasing here, but quite closely, because I have a lot of reverence for these words. He said, when you take some teachings, you put them into practice, and you find that your mental afflictions subside, and virtue arises. Follow that. Is that pretty close, Malcolm? I think it's very, I think it's very close. When you see it as practical benefit, not only you feel happy or you feel, you feel more whatever, no, it's not just that feeling happy. You want to feel happy, smoke some dope, although that is not a recommendation. <laughs> but, you know, all kinds of things will make you feel happy. That's not it. It's not just that. Do your mental afflictions subside? When having engaged in certain practice, mental afflictions subside, and therefore are you less prone to injurious, harmful behavior? Follow that. So adopt that which is beneficial, release that which is unbeneficial, utterly pragmatic and empirical. Then he went on to discuss the four immeasurables and the value of devoting one's life to the cultivation of the four immeasurables. And he concluded this very famous discourse by saying that if you follow those guidelines, which you can see is absolutely non-dogmatic, non zero dogma, none at all, do you have to believe this, believe that? Do you have to believe in reincarnation? Blah, blah, blah. It doesn't even come up. It doesn't even come up. Practice that which is truly beneficial for your mind, manifest in your behavior. It is beneficial for you. 
Devote yourself to the four immeasurables. That doesn't take any big metaphysical infrastructure or background, backdrop. If you devote your life in such a way, he said, and again, I paraphrase him very closely, if you do so, and it turns out, he, raises, he leaves this as a hypothetical, and it turns out that indeed there is life after this one, then you will die with the assurance, then you will have the assurance that I've lived this life well, a life saturated by the four measurables, couldn't be so bad, and a life dedicated to alleviating your mental afflictions, you will have the, the certainty that you've led this life well, and what will come will also be good. You'll have that certainty. Because how is it even imagined? I can simply not imagine that you, one could devote one's life to cultivating the four immeasurables, to alleviating one's mental afflictions, and the karma from that's going to really kick you in the teeth. You know, the universe is so designed that it really beats the beats the crap out of people who really get very loving and compassionate and warm and empathetic. Just really smacks you for that one. And when your mental afflictions go down, then you really get smacked more. I don't think there's any cosmos that is so psychotic. And so that's not the case. You can die with confidence. And then he concludes, and should there be no afterlife, then you will still have the assurance, I've led this life well. So it's Pascal's wager, something like 2,000 years before Pascal. And Pascal's wager is, you know, whether in, in, for Pascal, is, is there a God, heaven and hell and all of that? And for the Buddha, if there is karma and rebirth, you devote yourself to loving kindness, the four immeasurables, it will be good no matter what. So it's a fail-safe. It's a, it's a very good... So that's a background. That there is just no point in Buddhist practice. And this has come up with at least one or two people here. There's no, no point in Buddhist practice where you simply have to, you, you know, you have to say, okay, I believe this, this, and this. Because that's not what makes you a Buddhist. You may believe this and this and this and still not be a Buddhist. You may believe in reincarnation, karma. You may, may believe the Buddha was a really swell person and still not be a Buddhist. You may even believe the Buddha, Buddha is omniscient and still not be a Buddhist. Because being a Buddhist is not about what you believe. It's about where your trust is. And if you trust and trust yourself for your, for, your, for your liberation, for your pursuit of happiness to the Buddha as the teacher, the Dharma as the... As the as the medicine and the sangha, as your fellow practitioners. If you really have to trust there, you're a Buddhist. So that, that said, let's jump right in to the bardo issue. In, in Tibetan, called bardo, in, in Sanskrit, antarabhava. Um, a brief panoramic vision, just because I think it's helpful on, in the spirit of scientific inquiry, that if you have, and this is a, a good, solid scientific truth, rule of thumb, if you have multiple scientific labs, that are not just sharing notes, passing notes back and forth, that are working independently, and they maybe even use different methodologies, different systems of measurement, if these different labs with different systems of measurement, and perhaps even also some differences in their, th in their hypotheses and theoretical frameworks, if they come to, to same conclusions, like for example that Venus has phases, if you observe that Venus shows phases, that there are in fact moons around Jupiter, I mean, that's kind of easy, but nevertheless, you may have multiple telescopes, look at it from different parts of the globe and so forth, uh, different types, maybe radar telescope and optical telescope and who knows what. And if you keep on seeing there are these little things going around and around Jupiter, then that would indicate to you, since it's multiple labs operating with different methodologies, that what your, your, your discoveries are not simply artifacts of your own lab. They're not just your imagination. In fact, you are discovering something that is independent of your own particular laboratory. You're finding something that is true. 
So in that spirit, I, I really embrace this a lot. This is what one of the things gives me a lot of confidence in the whole issue of the substrate consciousness, that it crops up quite independently in the Theravada tradition with a different term. It finds up in the, in the Dzogchen tradition, and we find it elsewhere as well, in the Hindu tradition and so forth. Multiple labs, multiple methodologies, and multiple conceptual frameworks. In a similar fashion, when it comes to this Antarabhava, or the intermediate period, we can trace this in the Western tradition back to Socrates, who's coming from the Pythagorean tradition. Pythagoras, who's sometimes cited, I believe, as the father of Western philosophy, the father of mathematics. He was one of the most formidable, influential individuals in all of ancient Greece. Um, reportedly, he did not believe in reincarnation. He said he knew reincarnation, and legend has it that he could remember 20 of his own former rebirths. Legend has it, there are legends it's so hard to know because it was so long ago and they didn't keep very careful chronicles of this. There are, there are reasons to believe that he might have had some access to the wisdom of Egypt and by way of Egypt actually have had access to India. Because it is a true statement that there was a lot of, a lot of travel back and forth between India, across the Indian Ocean, to, uh, to, to that area of the, what we call the Near East. To Egypt there were they're gymnosophists, gymnosophists. These were naked ascetics in the court of Alexander the Great. Gymno and gym, I think means naked, and, and so a naked wise person. It looked like Alexander the Great had Hindu yogis in his court. I think there's some historical indication of that. And there were certainly Indian seafarers making their way to the Near East. Uh, some indication there may have been Buddhists. I think Edward Kanza indicated there may have been Buddhist monks in Alexandria. Long, long time ago and of course what we now call Egypt. So, what if it was a case, I know I'm beating around the bush a little bit, but I'll hone in. It's certainly very feasible that Pythagoras could have had access to Egypt, and in Egypt could have had indirect access to the wisdom and methods of India. And what is true is the so-called Pythagorean theorem, which is attributed obviously to him, uh, that that had been discovered before him in India. There are clear documents of that by the Jains. And so he may have borrowed the Pythagorean theorem from India by way of Egypt, and then other people, you know, labeled it after him. So all of this is in the realm of feasibility. I'm not pretending to, to know any of this is true, but uh, this is not just wild speculation either. That Pythagoras taught reincarnation is clearly true, that Socrates taught it is clearly true, and Socrates, and it was not in Timaeus, that was my mistake, I checked it, it was in Phaedo, and I don't know how to pronounce it, Phaedo, Phaedo, P-H-A-E-D-O, the treatise uh, written down by Plato, in this Socrates discusses what we would call the intermediate period, a time following your death prior to your next rebirth, and if you are not a philosopher, if you still cling to the flesh, if you still have worldly desires, if you still have attachment to this world, he said, when you get into that state, then you will feel this tremendous longing to be re-embodied. Re-embodied. And you'll be longing for it, longing for it, and then you'll succeed, and you will become re-embodied. This is Plato, Socrates, and the lineage goes back to Pythagoras. He also says, though, if you are a true philosopher, a one who loves wisdom, philosophia, then you will outgrown your sensual desires, your worldly cravings, in which case you will not be compelled to take gross form again, and you will remain in a, more, in a more ethereal realm. And it sounded an awful lot to me like a form or formless realm. So that's just, that's a brief excursion over there. Now that's, that's the West, that's us. That Pythagorean tr uh, tradition, by way, by way of Socrates, Plato, and, and so forth, carried right on through the, into the Christian tradition, up to, what was it, the 4th century? I don't remember exactly. 
but belief in reincarnation was quite common in early Christianity. It was promoted by one of the church fathers, Oregon, who believed in it, thought this was very much part of the Christian view. So enough of that. Let's go back to Buddhism. But it's just multiple labs, multiple labs. It's sometimes said by modern Theravadins that, that this whole notion of the intermediate period is not Buddhist view. Well, they have just ignored their own suttas because it's clearly uh, referred to in the Digha Nikaya and the Majjhima Nikaya. The Buddha ex explicitly refers to it. It's the Antarabhava. And he describes three phases of this intermediate period. So I just don't know how you can, unless you just don't like that, and you say, since I don't like it, he didn't say it. Otherwise, it's there, it's in Theravada Buddhism, it's in the Pali Canon. So the intermediate period is there in the original teachings of the Buddha. And of course, where once again, where it's more fully elaborated is in the Indian and then the Tibetan current. So what takes place? Now as we have four minutes till six. According to the accounts here, uh, in the process of dying, as you, I'll, I'll run through the parts you're familiar with, your senses implode, your cognitive functions dissolve, your whole mind dissolves into the substrate consciousness, where you may, may remain for a matter of hours, you may, may remain, according to Dujum Lingpa, for two or even three days. According to Gyatri my teacher, if you've achieved shamatha, then you should be able to enter into that blackout period lucidly and remain in it, you know, up to two or three days, but actually knowingly. I mean, you've just, you've just kind of achieved super, super shamatha, you know, irreversible shamatha. <laughs> you can't get your old mind back because uh, your brain is, you know, it's checked out. That comes to an end, and as your, your coarse mind had, so to speak, dissolved into the subtle mind, then the subtle mind, which we would call the substrate consciousness, uh, this dissolves into then the clear light of death. If you've already had some realization of rikpa uh, prior to the clear light of death, then they say this is like a child crawling onto its mother's lap. It's like recognizing someone from your past from whom you've been parted for some time, but upon seeing them, you, there's an immediate recognition. And with that recognition, based upon prior experience, then you have a real possibility of sustaining that experience, that non-conceptual, unmediated realization of rikpa, for, from what outside looks for days on end. In Gyanlam Rimba's case, it was a four and a half days. In the case of Ratchet Rinpoche, and I and a team of scientists saw him just one hours after his final samadhi had finished. He stayed in that, uh, this was in Dharamsala in 1992. He stayed in it for six days. And much more recently, I believe it was, you correct me if I'm wrong, Enrique, I think it was 17 days for the former head of the Galupa order. And Richie Davidson and team Antoine Lutz had the EG cap on his head during this time, and they're not telling what the data are yet. Uh, sooner or later, I hope they spill the beans. But 17 days. In other cases, I've heard even longer than that, one of the pension lamas, what was it, two months, I think. What you see from the outside is a total stillness, um, according to the Tibetans. Now, it'll be wonderful to get scientific data here, but, but so far they haven't been made public. According to the Tibetans, uh, there's no heartbeat, there's no, there's no breathing, in many cases, there lingers a warmth at the heart, the, the sheen of your face. And I look at you and you all have kind of shiny faces. You don't look dead. You, know, you don't have a gray pallor. Well, that remains. That remains. The plasticity of the skin, the texture of the skin remains. Uh, everything has stopped from the outside. For as long as the yogi is in this, it's called tuktam in Tibetan, this final samadhi. This is beyond the substrate, now abiding in this ultimate dimension of awareness. What has happened to the prana? Is there still some connection with the body? 
Well, when, when, you're, when you're just dead, you're merely dead, and you're under the blackout phase, then your energies have converged at the heart chakra. And there is a connection with your coarse body, and it's right at the heart chakra. When you slip into the clear light of death, then those energies, those, those subtle energies of the heart chakra dissolve into the very subtle energies, which go into what is called the indestructible bindu, which frankly I think is inconceivable. But it's still connected with the body, and it's still located here in the general, the, the, the center of the chest, the heart chakra. But it's like the inner sanctum. And so everything has gone to its subtlest dimension, very subtle energy, very subtle mind, the two inextricably, inextricably conjoined. And as long as that energy is there, the body won't deteriorate. It won't decompose. So whether it's days, whether it's weeks, however long, it doesn't decompose. Now, when, there is, when that final meditation is finished, then that very subtle energy disengages from the body, and that energy is indivisible from the mind. And from that point, then the, uh, the, the body will start to naturally decompose. Um, there are unusual cases. I've not seen it, but my very dear friend Tony Karam has. Of, I believe it was, I think he's seen it on two occasions, one in Tibet uh, with uh, uh, Geshe Lamrimba, Geshe Lamrimba, not Gen Lamrimba, a Tibetan Geshe. He saw that, I think he also, I think he's seen it three times, Tony. He's had really extraordinary fortune here. Uh, and he's told me this in some detail. It was three cases Tony has witnessed. One was with the Pension Lama, very shortly after his passing away, the last Pension Lama, obviously. Another one with his Geshe Lamrimba. And then another one, and I think he said it was with Tugu Urgen Rinpoche, but I, I wouldn't bet my life on it. Anybody remember among his students here? But it was some Lama living in Nepal, and I think it was Tugu Urgen Rinpoche. I'm not sure, absolutely sure of that. But what Tony witnessed was, and this has occurred other, elsewhere in Tibet, in, in um, Zamtang, Zamtang Gomba, in Amdo. This is a Jonama monastery. This was witnessed only about 10 years ago. The, the Vajrayacharya, the Vajrayana the meditation master there, he displayed this. And what did they display? Following this clear light of death, just the weirdest thing happens. The, a, a standard Tibetan will be something like maybe Mugisai, maybe a little bit larger, not much, four, five foot four, five foot six. The body proportionally shrinks down, shrinks down to five feet, four feet, three feet, two and a half feet. All the proportions, everything the same. Looks like they're dissolving into a doll. Everything the same. It's been witnessed a number of times. Tony saw it three times. Tibetans in, in Zamtang Monastery witnessed it there. It's not that terribly uncommon. And what this indicates, I asked Gyatran and he said, this indicates the person is very far advanced along the path of Dzogchen. But at least in terms of what they're displaying, have not come to the culmination of the Dzogchen path, which would then be manifested with the, clear, the, the rainbow body, where you don't just shrink down, you just dissolve into rainbow light. In one case, who was it? can't remember which one it was. I think it was the one in Nepal. The body was shrinking, 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 and the Tibetan said, what's the word? Mm. Cremate it now. <laughs> Cremate it now. Don't let it get any smaller. Don't let it get any smaller. <laughs> Cremate it quickly. We don't know how, you know, the, 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 incre the incredible shrinking man. <laughs> they didn't want it to shrink anymore because they wanted the relics. You know, we're losing our relics here. Let's cremate the guy. <laughs> you know, so they, they cremated and got the relics out, you know. <laughs> so maybe that's why the Buddha Shakyamuni didn't do this, because he wanted to leave lots of relics behind, you know, because there are certainly a lot of relics from the Buddha. So that, those are the outer displays. Rainbow body has not been witnessed, as far as I know, by any Western yet. Western yet. Uh, it's been witnessed about every 10 years, even after the Chinese occupation and genocide in Tibet. But what happens? 
Well, for the likes of us, for, for a person who's entered into, you know, let, let's say it's not just a rainbow body, but is highly realized, either like Genlam Rimba or so many of these other lamas, it's about every year or two, we find another lama, often in Nepal, sometimes even in the West, are displaying this clear light of death, the tukdam, where the body just remains and does not decompose for days. Well, for such a being, then it's easy to figure out that person goes, having gone through the dying process lucidly, through the clear, the clear light of death lucidly, enters into the bardo lucidly, and then just navigates it through it with wisdom and compassion and chooses the next most beneficial place to take a body again. In most cases, coming back out of compassion. That is, they, they may come back here, they may come, they will be motivated by compassion. So that's for the, for the realized beings. For the more ordinary mortals, um, most of us, that is, without having tasted the substrate consciousness, let alone fully achieved shamatha, will enter into the blackout, and that'll be like getting a, a, a general anesthesia. You'll just be blacked out. And then you'll go from the blackout phase of pretty much, for all practical purposes, unconscious. Then you'll be dunked into, you'll be dropped into the clear light of death, and you'll be just radically disoriented, does not compute, does not compute, does not compute at all. That'll be quite brief. So you'll just be kind of like, uh, like a Dunkin' Donut, you know. Oh, you didn't get it. Okay, next. <laughs> Moving right on. <laughs> you know? And then, lo and behold, you're in the bardo. And I won't go into all of the phases there, but you're in the bardo now. And once again, you feel embodied, not really substantially, but you do have a form. And according, now I'll speak from the Tibetan account, the form you'll take as you're entering your freshly, you know, a freshly baked bardo being, you're just now in the bardo, you will appear to yourself as having the form that you had just before you died. If you're old, you're old. If you're young, you're young. If you're a man, you're a man, woman, woman, and so forth. You'll appear that way, very much as if you're dreaming, and dreaming that you are the person you, was, you were before you fell asleep. You'll take on this form, and it apparently happens multiple times, that on many occasions, that you don't know you're dead. I'll bring, bring in one more vector. Oh, yeah, we are over time. So maybe we'll have part two of this one. I'll mention another vector here. I mentioned Pythagoras, Plato, Socrates... I mentioned the early Pali Canon, I mentioned the Tibetans, and I'm going to leave it at this to honor our cooks who are so wonderful for us. There's interesting research, scientific research, by very credible, rigorous scientists, once again at the University of Virginia, led by nowadays Jim Tucker, and they've done studies now for 40 years prior to Jim Tucker, Ian Stevenson being the main person there. But they've found children now who have accurate past life recall, but they not only have accurate past life recall, but I think it was... Oh, it was dozens. I think it was dozens of children among the hundreds, the hundreds or thousands that they've investigated. They found some dozens who not only had past life recall, but also had vivid memories of the bardo. And their memories were similar. And the memories were finding yourself dead and then a kind of a, a moving about period, like a restlessness. Some of you have spoken of restlessness. Feeling a restlessness of wanting to get re-embodied and then more of a steady state and then, boom, actually in some cases following your prospective parents home and waiting until they have sexual intercourse and then entering in. And the, the, there are, so the book for this is where reincarnation and biology intersect and then you can see all of the data behind it in the much larger tomes but once again, really quite similar to the Buddhist account. I think I'll go to the Buddhist account because now it is six minutes past, so I've not, I've not, my, my crimes are not egregious, but I think we'll pause there. And because this is important, and I'll relate this tomorrow 
to the significance of dream yoga for all of this, and even if we're not highly realized yogis, how we can really turn this into something very meaningful and direct our own rebirth without being highly realized lama, direct it in a very meaningful way. Because I think that's, since we're going to be facing this sooner or later, may as well have some tips before we get there. Okay? Good. So, enjoy your meal. I'll see you tomorrow morning.